Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Between 1947 and 1991, the world was locked in a decades-long confrontation between East and West. It was known as the Cold War, a terrifying stalemate that threatened to become World War III and devastate the globe with nuclear war. One of the most dangerous moments of the Cold War occurred in 1962, when it was discovered that the Soviet Union was placing nuclear missiles in Cuba, just 90 miles from the U.S. coast. The result was a 13-day international emergency known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. The key players were American President John F. Kennedy, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, and Cuban Prime Minister Fidel Castro. The fate of the world lay in the hands of these three men. And we came within a whisker of a nuclear war that would have killed a third of humanity. You're listening to episode 214 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how we almost went to nuclear war three times in one day. I'm Tom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis brought the world to the brink of nuclear war. American President Kennedy and Soviet Premier Khrushchev navigated the first 11 days of the crisis successfully. But the worst day, known as Black Saturday, was yet to come. And nuclear war could have started three times on that day. We were on the edge of Armageddon. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what happened on the 12th day of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Saturday, October 27th? This day would be the worst of the crisis, with nuclear war almost starting at least three times. The White House would later dub this day Black Saturday. Here in America, the Executive Committee of the National Security Council, or XCOM, met in the morning to discuss the previous night's telegram from Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. In it, he had out, he had proposed a diplomatic way out of the crisis. Basically, he would agree to pull nuclear missiles out of Cuba if we would promise not to invade the island. But as XCOM was discussing this, they got news that Khrushchev had made a new offer, and he'd done so publicly on Moscow radio. This meant that the public was now aware of the new offer, whereas they were not aware of what he'd said in the secret letter of the night before. And the new offer didn't say the same things as the letter. Instead of just wanting a promise not to invade Cuba in exchange for withdrawing the missiles, Khrushchev now wanted the U.S. to remove its Jupiter missiles from Italy and Turkey if he was going to remove the missiles from Cuba. A new telegram also began to arrive from Khrushchev in which he reiterated that message, saying, You are disturbed over Cuba. You say that this disturbs you because it is 90 miles by sea from the coast of the United States of America. But Turkey adjoins us. Our sentries patrol back and forth and see each other. Do you consider then that you have the right to demand security for your own country and the removal of the weapons you call offensive, but do not accord the same right to us? You have placed destructive missile weapons, which you call offensive, in Turkey, literally next to us. 
How then can recognition of our equal military capacities be reconciled with such unequal relations between our great states? This is irreconcilable. I therefore make this proposal. We are willing to remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive. We are willing to carry this out and to make this pledge in the United Nations. Your representatives will make a declaration to the effect that the United States, for its part, considering the uneasiness and anxiety of the Soviet state, will remove its analogous means from Turkey. So in the new telegram, Khrushchev reiterated what he said on Moscow radio. He re he'd removed the Soviet missiles from Cuba in exchange for us removing U.S. missiles from Turkey. XCOM members speculated that the reason for this shift in tone was due to debates within the Soviet hierarchy and that pressure may have been put on Khrushchev to take a harder position. In fact, some were of the opinion that Khrushchev hadn't written the Black Saturday message, but instead the foreign office at the Kremlin. And it was then, I guess, issued in his name. So Khrushchev might not even be in control in Moscow anymore. Sheldon Stern explains what happened next. Kennedy's advisors demanded rejection of the new offer. The president argued, however, that since the proposal had been made publicly, the U.S. had to assume that it represented Khrushchev's most recent position. He predicted that the U.S. would lose international support if such a reasonable offer were rejected, and seemed quite angry that his previous statements about exploring such a deal had been ignored by the State Department. Let's not kid ourselves, he reiterated three times. The XCOM, notwithstanding, lined up all but unanimously against the new offer and urged the president to focus on Khrushchev's Friday letter, warning that even discussing Turkey would wreck NATO and destroy U.S. credibility. At this time, we were having frequent aerial reconnaissance flights over Cuba, both with our U-2 spy planes, which flew very high, and with reconnaissance aircraft that flew at lower altitudes. We needed these flights to check on the work that the Soviets were doing on the missile sites to see how close they were to being operational. It was believed that the Cubans did not have missiles capable of going high enough to shoot down a U-2. So if one of our U-2s got shot down, it would be the Soviets that had done it as part of a deliberate escalation of the situation. As a result, President Kennedy had already decided that we would launch an airstrike on Cuba if one of our U-2s was shot down. XCOM wouldn't even meet. We'd simply attack, knowing that this could set off World War III. And then, at 12 noon, one of our U-2 spy planes was shot down over Cuba. The pilot was Air Force Major Rudolph Anderson of South Carolina, but he would be the only U.S. citizen killed by enemy fire during the missile crisis. Because despite the plan to immediately attack if a U-2 was shot down, Kennedy decided to wait and see what happened. They thought that maybe this was some kind of accident. A few hours later, word arrived that another U.S. reconnaissance plane had been uh, shot and struck, but did not crash, and we didn't end up attacking after that either. Later, it was thought that perhaps it was a local Soviet commander in Cuba who gave the shootdown order and that he wasn't acting on instructions from Moscow. Also later, we learned that Premier Khrushchev had assumed the same thing that we did, that if a U-2 went down, we would see it as a deliberate Soviet escalation of the situation. And so Khrushchev had actually ordered the Soviet commander in Cuba not to shoot down any U-2s. 
Later still, Premier Khrushchev told his son that the shootdown of the U-2 was actually done by the Cuban military and had been ordered by Fidel Castro's brother Raul. So that was one of the three times nuclear war could have started on Black Saturday if we had not waited and just attacked after the U-2 was shot down, we likely would have gone to nuclear war. Now, another close call also occurred in conjunction with another U-2 flight. What happened in that case? One of our U-2 spy planes made an unplanned accidental overflight of the Soviet Union's Pacific coast up near Alaska and the Bering Strait. In response, the Soviets scrambled MiG fighters, and we, in turn, launched F-102 fighter jets that carried nuclear air-to-air missiles. So with hostile planes confronting each other in the sky, if any shooting started, one of those nuclear air-to-air missiles might have been launched, and that would result in nuclear war. So that was the second time. The third close call with nuclear war that day was perhaps the closest of all. What happened? This was something we didn't even learn about until a conference in the year 2002, 40 years after the crisis. Basically, the U.S. Navy vessels that were patrolling the quarantine line dropped some signaling depth charges. Uh, These are practice depth charges about the size of hand grenades, so they're not powerful enough to do serious damage to a submarine. Instead, they're used as a means of communication. Their purpose is to tell a submarine below you that they've been spotted by the ships on the surface, and these uh, many depth charges are meant to force the sub to come to the surface so it can be identified. Underneath the depth charges that the Navy dropped, in this case, was a Soviet B-59 Foxtrot submarine, and it was surrounded on the surface by 11 U.S. Navy destroyers and an aircraft carrier. The sub was too deep to monitor radio traffic on the surface since radio waves don't propagate well through seawater, so it had no way of knowing what was going on upstairs. In fact, it had been out of communication with Moscow for days. And it was carrying a 15 kiloton nuclear tipped torpedo, which it was authorized to launch if it was damaged by depth charges. The captain of the sub, Valentin Grigorievich Savitsky, thought that nuclear war may have started on the surface, and he wanted to launch the nuclear torpedo. His political officer, Ivan Semenovich Masilinikov, agreed that they should launch, and normally, All it would take to authorize a launch in this situation was the agreement of the captain and the political officer. But the chief of staff of the Soviet submarine flotilla, Vasily Arkhipov, also happened to be on board the ship, so he needed to agree as well. The three men were under a lot of pressure, in part because the sub desperately needed to surface. It was a diesel-powered submarine, its batteries were very low, and its air conditioning was broken, meaning that it was very hot and there were high levels of carbon dioxide in the air. An argument broke out among the three men. Captain Savitsky lost his temper and became irate, but Arkhipov insisted that they not launch the nuclear torpedo. Instead, he said, they needed to surface and wait for orders from Moscow, even though Moscow had previously ordered them not to surface if they were discovered by the Americans. Eventually, Captain Savitsky calmed down and they did surface, which actually made their superiors back in the USSR quite angry with them for breaking secrecy. However, this likely saved us from nuclear war. 
Defense Secretary Robert McNamara later said, we came very close, closer than we knew at the time, to nuclear war. Historian and Kennedy advisor Arthur Schlesinger said, this was not only the most dangerous moment of the Cold War, it was the most dangerous moment in human history. And as the director of the National Security Archive, Thomas Blanton, later said, a guy named Vasily Arkhipov saved the world. Wow. Meanwhile, back in Washington, we were continuing to have diplomatic discussions. Including through unofficial channels. One of these was actually a reporter from ABC News named John Scully, who covered the State Department. He had been contacted by a man calling himself Alexander Fomin who was the Soviet embassy's public affairs counselor. However, that was just a cover story. Alexander Fomin's real name was Alexander Feklasov, and he was the KGB station chief in Washington. He was tasked with recruiting new agents for Soviet intelligence, and he had been the case officer in charge of, for example, Julius Rosenberg and Klaus Fuchs, who were atomic spies that helped steal American nuclear secrets for Russia, as we'll discuss in future episodes. Is it common for officials working at an embassy to secretly be spies? Yeah, that's totally normal. Uh, we do that. They do that. Everybody does that. A good number of people working in any embassy that you name are actually intelligence operatives. And since Alexander Fomin was working at the Soviet embassy as a public relations guy, it was totally plausible for him as a cover story to be meeting with an American news reporter like Scully. So the two had been getting together at restaurants in Washington for unofficial meetings and passing back-channel messages between the two governments. On Black Saturday, after Khrushchev's new, tougher message arrived, Secretary of State Dean Rusk asked Scully to arrange an urgent meeting with Fomin. According to a timeline of the crisis at the National Security Archive, they met at 4.15 p.m. and... When Scully asks Fomin why the October 26th proposal has been scrapped and the Jupiters introduced into the deal, Fomin explains that the change is a result of poor communications. He states that Premier Khrushchev's new message had been drafted before his report on the favorable U.S. reaction to the October 26th proposal had arrived. Furious at Foman's response, Scully shouts that Foman's explanation is not credible and that he th thought it's simply a stinking double cross. An invasion of Cuba, Scully warns, is now only a matter of hours away. Foman says that he and Ambassador Dubrynin are expecting a reply from Khrushchev at any moment and urges Scully to report to U.S. officials that there is no treachery. Scully replies that he does not think anyone will believe Foman's assurances, but that he will convey the message in any case. The two part ways and Scully immediately types out a memo on the meeting, which is sent to the XCOM. At about the same time that Scully uh, met with Foman, XCOM was also meeting. Sheldon Stern explains, JFK continued to argue that a deal on the Turkish and Cuban missiles had to be arranged as soon as possible, preferably with, but if necessary, without the agreement of NATO. He also rejected XCOM demands to implement his earlier decision to destroy the SAM site that had fired the fatal missile. The president finally agreed to a pro forma acceptance of the offer in Khrushchev's Friday letter, but continued to insist that this strategy was a waste of time. President Kennedy had a letter drafted to be given to the Soviet ambassador, 
Anatoly Dobrynin, and he sent his brother Bobby to deliver it. At the same time, they released a copy of the letter to the press so that it would be public and on record, and nobody in the Soviet hierarchy could conveniently delay the message from getting to Premier Khrushchev. In the letter, President Kennedy agreed that if the Cuban missiles were removed from Cuba under UN supervision and the Russians committed not to putting them back later on, then the U.S. would cancel the quarantine and promise not to invade Cuba. But there was no mention in the letter of our taking Jupiter missiles out of Turkey and Italy. So the way the letter read, it looked like the president was agreeing to the terms that the premier had proposed in his telegram from Friday night, not what he had said earlier on Black Saturday. The idea of accepting the Friday letter while publicly ignoring the Saturday offer came to be known as the Trollope ploy. Where does that name come from? From the 19th century British novelist uh, Anthony Trollope. In his novels, he occasionally uses a plot device in which a woman purposefully misunderstands something that a man did and interprets it as if it were a marriage proposal. The man didn't intend it as anything of the sort, but the woman deliberately took it that way. Journalist William Sapphire explains, An occasional plot device in the 19th century novels of Anthony Trollope involved the misheard proposal or the misread caress. A man would say or do something innocuous. A Victorian maiden would interpret that word or gesture romantically and accept what she considered amounted to a proposal of marriage, and the poor or lucky fellow found himself affianced. Lord Rufford makes such a gesture to the husband-hunting Arabella Trefoil in Trollope's 1875 novel American Senator and finds himself in the center of Trefoil's formidable attempt at landing a proper mate. Her attempt does not succeed. Trollope uses the same ploy four years later in his novel John Caldigate, in which John gets thrown into a linen closet with his cousin Julia and comes out, in Julia's and her mother's minds, engaged. So the original Trollope ploy involved a woman interpreting a man's casual act as a firm proposal of marriage that could be acted upon. And the idea here was that President Kennedy was interpreting Khrushchev's initial offer as a firm proposal that could be acted upon to solve the crisis, even though Khrushchev later seemed to retract that offer and put another in its place. In the years since, the Trollope ploy has become a term for a common negotiating tactic. Wikipedia explains, The term Trollope ploy is used to describe a situation in which a proposal from a proposing party is deliberately misinterpreted by a responding party in such a way that it is more to the responding party's liking. The responding party then communicates their usually laudatory acceptance of the incorrect interpretation of the proposal. The proposing party must then either accept the agreement to the incorrect interpretation, or they must object and attempt to explain their initial proposal. The purpose of this technique is to pressure the proposing party into accepting the deliberately misinterpreted proposal by forcing them to choose between acceptance and cordiality or rejection of the responding party's ostensibly friendly gestures. So the negotiating tactic of interpreting offers in terms of what you prefer rather than what the other person meant is now called the trollope ploy. That happens a lot in marriage. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> how did the trollope ploy develop in the Cuban Missile Crisis? In an article for History News Network, Sheldon Stern explains. 
The tale of this shrewd maneuver for responding to Khrushchev's letters began with Stuart Alsop and Charles Bartlett writing in the Saturday Evening Post less than two weeks after the crisis and exploiting leaks from the Kennedy brothers themselves. Their article launched the notion that Robert Kennedy had dreamed up the Trollope ploy to save the day. There has been a long-standing consensus that the Trollope ploy was a brilliant way to handle it, an ingenious ploy, an extraordinary diplomatic move, and that RFK met with the Soviet ambassador on the evening of October 27th to execute the Trollope ploy. So very quickly after the event, it was announced that Robert Kennedy had thought up the Trollope ploy as a brilliant way of saving the world from possible nuclear holocaust. And then President Kennedy dispatched his brother to meet with the Soviet ambassador that evening to carry out the plan. At 9 p.m., after Bobby's meeting with Soviet Ambassador Dobrynin, Kennedy reconvened XCOM. Nobody knew if Khrushchev would accept the offer Bobby had made, and so they still needed a plan for what would happen if Khrushchev didn't. In his book, The Cuban Missile Crisis in American Memory, Sheldon Stern explains, When the exhausted and anxious XCOM reconvened later that evening, only half of its members were aware of RFK's fateful meeting with Dobrynin. The president agreed to call up 24 Air Reserve squadrons, 14,000 men, and roughly 300 troop carrier transports. As a result, the meeting ended with a discussion of setting up an interim civilian government for Cuba and letting the Soviets know that U.S. military power might soon be unleashed against Cuba. They were thus still planning for the possibility of a full-scale invasion. President Kennedy was calling up thousands of military servicemen and hundreds of troop transports to take them to Cuba for an invasion. But there were some things we didn't know. The Soviets had 162 nuclear warheads in Cuba that we were not aware of. And these almost certainly would have been used if we invaded, even though Castro believed that every human in Cuba would die as a result. And it was looking like that invasion would happen. Robert Kennedy later recalled, We had not abandoned all hope, but what hope there was now rested with Khrushchev's revising his course within the next few hours. It was a hope, not an expectation. The expectation was military confrontation by Tuesday, October 30, and possibly tomorrow, October 29th. Things were looking grim. What happened on the 13th and final day of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Sunday, October 28th? Just after midnight, our ambassador to NATO, Thomas Finletter, was sent a cable telling him to inform our NATO allies that... The situation as we see it is increasingly serious and time is growing shorter. The United States may find it necessary within a very short time to be in its interest and that of its fellow nations in the Western Hemisphere to take whatever military action may be necessary. So this was notification to our allies that military action against Cuba might begin at any time. And at 6 a.m., the CIA reported that new surveillance photos showed that Soviet technicians had completed work on all 24 of the medium-range ballistic missile sites that we knew about in Cuba. So time was running out. And what was happening in Russia? Premier Khrushchev was not in Moscow at the time. Instead, he was at his dacha, or summer home. And he was aware of how dangerous the situation was and that things were spiraling out of control. 
Previously, he had been consulting with the Politburo, the executive committee of the Communist Party, on the developing situation. But as soon as he was given Kennedy's latest offer at his dacha, he immediately accepted without consulting the Politburo. He also did not consult Fidel Castro, despite the fact he previously said that the Cuban government would need to approve the withdrawal of the missiles. Instead, Khrushchev immediately drafted a response and had it read on Moscow radio so that President Kennedy and the rest of the world would learn about it as quickly as possible. He stated, In order to eliminate as rapidly as possible the conflict which endangers the cause of peace, to give an assurance to all people who crave peace, and to reassure the American people who I am certain also want peace, as do the people of the Soviet Union, The Soviet government, in addition to earlier instructions on the discontinuation of further work on weapons construction sites, has given a new order to dismantle the arms which you described as offensive and to create and return them to the Soviet Union. I regard with respect and trust the statement you made in your message of October 27, 1962, that there would be no attack, no invasion of Cuba, and not only on the part of the United States, but also on the part of other nations of the Western Hemisphere as you said in your same message. Then the motives which induced us to render assistance of such a kind to Cuba disappear. As I had informed you in the letter of October 27, we are prepared to reach agreement to enable United Nations representatives to verify the dismantling of these means. Thus, in view of the assurances you have given and our instruction on dismantling, there is every condition for eliminating the present conflict. The message also contained some posturing and scolding of the United States, no doubt to make it easier for the Russian public to accept. But the core of the message was that Khrushchev had accepted the deal. The message was broadcast at 9 a.m. Eastern Time in the U.S., and shortly afterwards, President Kennedy issued a statement that said, I welcome Chairman Khrushchev's statesmanlike decision to stop building bases in Cuba dismantling offensive weapons, and returning them to the Soviet Union under United Nations verifications. This is an important and constructive contribution to peace. We shall be in touch with the Secretary General of the United Nations with respect to reciprocal measures to assure peace in the Caribbean area. It is my earnest hope that the governments of the world can, with a solution of the Cuban crisis, turn their urgent attention to the compelling necessity for ending the arms race and reducing world tensions. So, it looked like we had a deal. To everyone's great relief, I imagine there were prayers of Thanksgiving being ever offered up all over the world. No doubt, but it wasn't to everyone's relief. Uh, according to a timeline of the crisis at the National Security Archive, Although there was a sense of relief and exultation among most of the XCOM members after word of Khrushchev's decision is received, several members of the military Joint Chiefs of Staff are less enthusiastic. Admiral George Anderson reportedly complains, we've been had, while Air Force General Curtis LeMay suggests that the United States go in and make a strike on Monday anyway. In the afternoon, the Joint Chiefs instruct military commanders not to relax their alert procedures, warning that the Soviet Union's offer to dismantle the missile sites could be an insincere proposal meant to gain time. So we weren't yet sure if the offer was real or a delaying tactic, and members of the Joint Chiefs weren't the only people who were extremely unhappy. In Havana, 
Fidel Castro, who was not consulted or informed of the decision beforehand, reportedly goes into a rage upon hearing of the Soviet move, cursing Khrushchev. We won't use the actual cuss words in Spanish or in English that Fidel used, but suffice it to say that he said Premier Khrushchev was the son of a female dog, uh, the son of parents who were not married to each other, and also that Premier Khrushchev was a particular body part that's located at the bottom of the digestive tract. Also... A few days later, Castro will publicly state in a speech at the University of Havana that Khrushchev lacked cojones. After meeting with high military leaders during the morning, Castro apparently goes to San Antonio Air Force Base himself in order to shoot down a U.S. low-altitude aircraft. However, U.S. planes do not pass over the base. (laughs) I love that. He wants to personally shoot down a U.S. aircraft, but we don't have ones flying over the base he goes to. So it'll make him like Castro anymore. (laughs) Yeah, he he doesn't get his chance and his spontaneous airplane hunting trip did not did not bear any fruit. But suffice it to say, he was really, really mad. Uh, Meanwhile, back in Washington at 11 a.m., Bobby Kennedy met with Soviet Ambassador Dobrynin again. And Dobrynin said Premier Khrushchev wanted to send his best wishes to the president and his brother. When XCOM met that morning, Secretary, or when XCOM met, uh, Secretary of Defense McNamara reported that a Soviet ship approaching the quarantine line had stopped and that there would be no more ships approaching it uh, that day. At least there weren't any that we had observed coming toward it. As a gesture of goodwill, President Kennedy ordered that there be no further overflights of Cuba that day and that no action be taken against Soviet bloc ships. Meanwhile, around noon, Fidel Castro declares that the U.S. assurance of non-aggression against Cuba is unsatisfactory unless it includes additional measures. He outlines several specific demands, later to be known as his five points. They include an end to the economic sanctions against Cuba, an end to all subversive activities carried out from the United States against Cuba, a halt to all attacks on Cuba carried out from the U.S. military bases on the island of Puerto Rico, the cessation of aerial and naval reconnaissance flights in Cuban airspace and waters, and the return of Guantanamo Naval Base to Cuba. But Castro really didn't get his way on that stuff. We continued to have economic sanctions against Cuba. We continued to conduct subversive activities against him. We continued aerial reconnaissance of the island, and we did not give back Guantanamo Naval Base. Between 1 and 3 p.m. Eastern Time, Soviet military forces received the order to dismantle the missiles, and work of dismantling the missile sites began quite promptly at 5 p.m. In the evening, reporter John Scali met again with Soviet KGB station chief Alexander Feklasov. Feklasov said he had been instructed to thank Scali and to say that the information he provided at their meeting the previous day was most helpful to Premier Khrushchev. He also said that Scali's verbal explosion in that meeting contributed to Khrushchev making his mind up so quickly. So when Scali blew his top, called the Black Saturday proposal a stinking double cross and said Cuba would be invaded within hours. It helped bring home the seriousness of the situation to Premier Khrushchev, and Feklasov wanted to thank Scali. At last, the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis were now finally over. 
I say it again. Wow. <laughs> Before we get to the aftermath of the 13 days, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Gary H., Daniel V., Jared C., Joseph W., and Matthew B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, what happened in the days that followed the Cuban Missile Crisis? There was a gradual winding down that took about a month, Wikipedia summarizes. The U.S. continued the blockade. In the following days, aerial reconnaissance proved that the Soviets were making progress in removing the missile systems. The 42 missiles and their support equipment were loaded onto eight Soviet ships. On November 2nd, 1962, Kennedy addressed the U.S. via radio and television broadcasts regarding the dismantlement process of the Soviet R-12 missile bases located in the Caribbean region. The ships left Cuba on November 5th to 9th. The U.S. made a final visual check as each of the ships passed the blockade line. Further diplomatic efforts were required to remove the Soviet IL-28 bombers, and they were loaded on three Soviet ships on December 5th and 6th. Concurrent with the Soviet commitment on the IL-28s, the U.S. government announced the end of the blockade from 6.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on November 20th, 1962. That same day, we went back to our usual Cold War defense readiness condition of DEFCON 4. So they kept their word about removing the missiles. We kept our word about ending the blockade, as well as our promise not to invade Cuba later on. What were the long-term ramifications of the Cuban Missile Crisis? There were a number of them, and again, Wikipedia has a good summary. The enormity of how close the world came to thermonuclear war impelled Khrushchev to propose a far-reaching easing of tensions with the U.S. In a letter to President Kennedy dated October 30, 1962, Khrushchev outlined a range of bold initiatives to forestall the possibility of a further nuclear crisis including proposing a non-aggression treaty between the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and the Soviet Alliance of Nations known as the Warsaw Pact, or even disbanding these military blocs, a treaty to cease all nuclear weapons testing and even the elimination of all nuclear weapons, resolution of the hot-button issue of Germany by both East and West formally accepting the existence of West Germany and East Germany, and U.S. recognition of the government of mainland China. The letter invited counterproposals and further exploration of these and other issues through peaceful negotiations. So Khrushchev was making a bunch of bold proposals here, and he wasn't making demands. He wasn't being inflexible about them. He openly invited President Kennedy to make counterproposals, and we could talk through all the proposals through the diplomatic process. What was Kennedy's response? 
he was polite, but rather lukewarm. Uh, he sent Khrushchev a private message saying that he didn't know how much he could explore these ideas since he was still having to deal with hardliners in the U.S. government and military who were very hostile towards Russia and other communist countries. And that was true. I mean, for example, um, Air Force General uh, Curtis LeMay thought that the outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis was, in his words, the greatest defeat in our history, despite the fact it ended peacefully. He wanted to invade Cuba even after the Soviets took out their missiles. And decades later, LeMay said, We could have gotten not only the missiles out of Cuba, we could have gotten the communists out of Cuba at that time. And LeMay was not the only person who felt this way. Another factor that may have been on Kennedy's mind was the trustworthiness of the Soviets. Premier Khrushchev's dramatic proposals had arrived in a letter dated October 30th, just two days after the crisis had ended. And Kennedy was still very suspicious of the Soviets. On the day of the crisis, he had called his predecessor, President Dwight Eisenhower, and he expressed his concerns. The phone call was captured on the secret uh, Kennedy taping system, and here's part of what it said. We then got this message this morning, so we now uh, have to wait to see how it unfolds, and there's a good deal of complexities to it. Well, we just have to set up satisfactory procedures to determine whether these actions will be carried out. Uh, if they engage in subversion, if they uh, attempt to do any aggressive acts and so on, then all bets are off. In addition, my guess is that uh, by the end of next month, we're going to be toe-to-toe in Berlin anyway. We all know they're, they just uh, probe and uh, their words unreliable, so we just have to stay uh, busy on it. You can hear how suspicious Kennedy is. He doesn't know if the Soviets will actually withdraw their missiles from Cuba. He suspects they may engage in subversive activities. He suspects they may take aggressive action. And he thinks within a month that there will be a new Berlin crisis, perhaps to allow Khrushchev to save face by making a show of force in Germany to compensate for the loss of face he incurred by backing down in Cuba. Kennedy says the Soviets' word is unreliable and they have to stay on top of this. So when a letter arrives two days later with these sweeping proposals, Kennedy would not have thought that Khrushchev was being serious. He would have suspected that Khrushchev was playing some kind of game. I mean, eliminate all nuclear weapons, dissolve NATO and the Warsaw Pact. That's just crazy talk. Or that's how it would have sounded to Kennedy. What about the proposal to resolve the issue of Germany by having East and West Germany recognize each other? Oh, despite how positive it sounded, that could actually be a setup on Khrushchev's part to provoke a new Berlin crisis. If Kennedy agreed to pursue that proposal, all, Ken all Khrushchev would have to do is Im impose some new demand, some new condition that the U.S. couldn't accept. And then Khrushchev could claim that the U.S. was being unreasonable, giving him a pretext to create a Berlin crisis a month later. So it likely wasn't just the hardliners in America that Kennedy was concerned about. It was also likely the fact that he simply didn't trust Khrushchev at this point, having just weathered a major world crisis that Khrushchev had provoked. Did anything come from the of the proposals that Khrushchev had made? 
Actually, yeah, uh, we did start negotiating about his idea of restricting the kinds of nuclear tests that could be carried out. And less than a year later, we signed what's known as the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Uh, This prohibits testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, underwater, and in outer space, which is why all the tests we've conducted in the years since have been underground tests. One of the things that was a problem during the Cuban Missile Crisis was the difficulty Kennedy and Khrushchev had in communicating with each other. They were using very slow communication systems and official messages often took six hours to deliver. That required them to use unofficial back channels because the two leaders had no way of quickly communicating with each other directly. Did they do anything to fix that situation? They did, and sometimes it took more than six hours to deliver a message. In fact, it took nearly 12 hours to receive and decode Khrushchev's 3,000-word Friday night message. By the time the White House had a reply ready, Khrushchev had already broadcast the stronger Black Saturday message demanding the removal of our Jupiter missiles from Turkey. And so it was felt that if we'd been able to communicate more quickly, the crisis could have been resolved sooner and without all the difficulties the Black Saturday message caused. As a result, in 1963, we signed the hotline agreement to create such a link. In the popular imagination, this has resulted in the Moscow-Washington hotline, which is envisioned as a dedicated telephone line between the White House and the Kremlin. In fact, it was pictured as a red phone, and you'll encounter references to it as the red phone. But in reality, there wasn't such a telephone. The so-called hotline wasn't even a telephone link at all, and it wasn't in the White House. Instead, it is in the Pentagon, and originally it was a teletype system, although in 1986 they shifted to fax machines, and since 2008 it's been a secure computer link using encrypted email. What were the consequences of the crisis for Premier Khrushchev? They weren't good. Uh, This was a huge loss of face for the Soviet Union. Uh, You might think that both Kennedy and Khrushchev would be hailed as heroes for finding a way out of the crisis, but that's not what happened. To the world, it appeared that Premier Khrushchev had created the worst crisis in in world history by by putting his missiles in Cuba, making him look irrational and dangerous. It was particularly easy to portray him as irrational because of an event that took place in October 1960 before President Kennedy took office. It occurred when Khrushchev was at a meeting of the United Nations in New York City. Khrushchev got very angry when a delegate from the Philippines criticized the Soviet Union, and he began pounding on his desk. Written accounts differ, some saying he merely pounded with his fists, but Khrushchev later admitted he banged on the desk with his shoe, and there is motion video of him doing this. Um, So you've got Khrushchev having this angry outburst at the UN, banging the desk with his shoe. Um, The Irish ambassador who was presiding over the meeting eventually adjourned just to shut everything down. And he banged his gavel down so hard that it broke and the head of the gavel came flying off. In response to all the commotion, British uh, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, with typical understated British wit, said, may we have a translation of that, please? But the so the shoe banging incident made Khrushchev look like an unstable madman. And then when President Kennedy insisted that he remove the missiles from Cuba, 
Khrushchev did so, making him look weak and timid. That combination of dangerously aggressive and weak is not a good look for the leader of a world superpower. And many in Russia felt that Khrushchev's decision to withdraw the missiles from Cuba in exchange for a promise we wouldn't invade was a national humiliation. I mean, we didn't even agree to pull our Jupiter missiles out of Italy and Turkey, which were right next to Russia. Yet they had to pull their missiles out of Cuba, which is right next to the U.S. So how is that fair? Khrushchev thus came out of the Cuban Missile Crisis looking really bad. And this likely contributed to the fact he lost power in 1964. Just two years later, in October of 1964, Khrushchev was removed from power because of an internal Russian plot that we may discuss in a future episode. And the fact he had so humiliated Russia on the world stage by publicly giving in to President Kennedy's demands may have contributed to this. What were the long-term consequences for President Kennedy? At least on the surface, they were good. Uh, Kennedy came out of the crisis looking strong. He appeared to be a calm, rational leader who called Khrushchev's bluff and got the missiles out of Cuba without having to give up anything in return except for a promise not to invade the island and not to support others in doing so. We didn't even have to give up our Jupiter missiles in Italy and Turkey, even though some of them were as close to Russia as the Russian missiles in Cuba were to America. Were there undesirable consequences for Kennedy and for America? One may have been the fact that JFK lost his life. As we talked about in episode 15, President Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963, just over a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it's been speculated that the crisis may have been why this happened. Maybe Premier Khrushchev ordered the assassination to get back at Kennedy for how he was publicly humiliated. Or maybe Lee Harvey Oswald did it on his own initiative to get back at Kennedy. Or maybe Castro ordered it because of what the crisis did to him in his country. Or maybe the CIA or someone else ordered it because they thought Kennedy had been too weak for not invading Cuba. And we'll discuss these topics in future episodes. As for consequences for America, apart from the Kennedy assassination, it's been thought that this may have encouraged President Johnson, as well as President Kennedy himself, to step up our involvement in Vietnam. Uh, coming out of the Cuban Missile Crisis, America looked strong. It looked like we were able to get the communists to back down. And some have speculated that this led to our 1960s years presidents being more aggressive, which may have led to our involvement in the Vietnam War. Politicians always try to paint themselves as the good guys, no matter what happens. They try to make it look like they were super competent and on top of things, as well as hiding mistakes and ill-advised judgments. Did the Kennedys and the members of XCOM do that after the crisis? Oh, yeah. Uh, for example, Bobby Kennedy tried to paint himself as one of the cool heads in the room so that even when others wanted to attack, he resisted and helped keep us out of nuclear war. Bobby had political ambitions of his own. He ran for and won a seat in the United States Senate in 1964. 
And he was running for U.S. president when he was assassinated in 1968. So he had a definite interest in making himself look good in his book, 13 Days, about the crisis. He was assassinated before the completion of the book, and we will be talking about his assassination in a future episode. But the book was finished by John Kennedy's uh, speechwriter and confidant, Ted Sorensen, using Bobby's diary and private papers. And it became the core narrative that historians relied upon for many years until well after the Kennedy tapes were released. So many commentators have tended to view the crisis in terms of Bobby Kennedy's preferred narrative. This narrative included making Bobby appear more important than he was. As Sheldon Stern explains, Special Assistant and Confidant Kenneth O'Donnell Commenting on an unpublished draft of 13 Days, he read about six months after JFK's assassination, reportedly remarked to RFK, I thought Jack was president during the missile crisis. Bobby is said to have replied, he's not running and I am. RFK ran successfully for a U.S. Senate seat from New York in 1964. Another version has RFK replying, Jack wouldn't mind. Promoting Bobby's preferred narrative was also something various Kennedy loyalists did, including Arthur Schlesinger. In 1978, Schlesinger's conclusion about Bobby Kennedy's role in the missile crisis meetings was unequivocal. Robert Kennedy was the indispensable partner. Without him, John Kennedy would have found it far more difficult to overcome the demand for military action. It was Robert Kennedy who stopped the airstrike madness in its tracks. Within the closed meetings of the so-called Executive Committee of the National Security Council, Robert Kennedy was a dove from the start. Schlesinger backs up this judgment with a quote he found in the RFK papers from October 16th, the first day of the XCOM meetings. If you bomb the missile sites and the airports, RFK said on the first day, you are covering most of Cuba. You're going to kill an awful lot of people and take an awful lot of heat on it. The Attorney General also warned that the Soviets would respond to U.S. bombing of the missile sites by simply sending in more missiles and by doing the same thing by bombing U.S. missiles in Turkey. But this is an example of how Bobby later manipulated the narrative by selectively reporting data from the XCOM meetings in his private papers. Stern explains... In fact, this ostensibly dovish quote from RFK's private papers was profoundly misleading, if not out-and-out deceptive. Bobby Kennedy was actually arguing that bombing the sites was a weak and inadequate response. He was instead demanding a full-scale invasion. So Bobby reported something he had said, and on day one he was recommending against airstrikes on the missile bases, But it wasn't because he wanted a peaceful solution to the crisis. It was because he wanted a full-scale invasion of Cuba instead. By reporting just his opposition to the airstrikes, he made himself look like a dove when really he was a hawk. And for people who don't remember those uh, times, people who supported making peace with the Soviets were called doves, while people who favored starting or risking military action were called hawks or war hawks. Bobby may have started as a hawk on day one, but as XCOM debated things and they got new information, his views might have changed by the end of the crisis, and he may have switched from hawk to dove. Did that happen? No. uh, Stern explains that on Black Saturday, after Khrushchev's offer to trade his missiles in Cuba for our missiles in Turkey, 
JFK expressed openness to that idea, but... The XCOM nonetheless continued to resist JFK's readiness to respond to Khrushchev's public offer, and RFK was consistently one of the most outspoken leaders of the hawkish side. Bobby vigorously opposed the idea of accepting the deal, and even late at night on Black Saturday, he was still talking like a hawk. Stern comments... RFK's final words on the XCOM tapes were characteristically blunt and uncompromising. I'd like to take Cuba back, he remarked wistfully. That would be nice. So no, RFK was not a dove in this process, no matter how he tried to portray himself later on. He was like other members of XCOM and the Joint Chiefs of Staff who favored military airstrikes and invasion. And he lied about that afterwards. Well, at least he proposed the trollop ploy of accepting Khrushchev's Friday message and ignoring the Black Saturday message so that we didn't have to pull our missiles out of Italy and Turkey. We only had to promise not to invade Cuba. Yeah, except that that was also one of the lies the Kennedys told. The truth is that we did accept the Black Saturday proposal, and the trollop ploy is a myth. The president himself participated in the myth-making. They didn't want the U.S. to look weak, and they thought that we would look weak if the world knew we traded our missiles for theirs. They wanted it to, to make it look like we were tough, like we forced Khrushchev to back down and remove his missiles without getting a quid pro quo in exchange. So they didn't tell the public that we agreed to remove our missiles from Turkey. They hid this fact and kept the real terms of the deal secret from the world. President Kennedy even lied to President Eisenhower in his phone call on day 13. Let's listen to that part of the call. General, I just wanted to bring you up to date on this uh, matter because I know you're concerned about it. We got uh, Friday night, got a message from uh, Khrushchev, which uh, said that uh, he would uh, withdraw these missiles and technicians and so on, providing we not plan to invade Cuba. We uh, then got a message, uh, that public one, the next morning in which he said he would do that if we withdrew our missiles from Turkey. We uh, then, as you know, uh, issued a statement that uh, we couldn't get into that deal. So uh, we then got this message this morning. So we now uh, have to wait to see how it unfolds. So we just heard Kennedy describe receiving the Friday message and the Black Saturday message. He noted that they'd rejected the Black Saturday offer, and then they got this new message agreeing to our acceptance of the Friday deal, and now they'd have to see how that played out. Kennedy thus lied to his predecessor, and Eisenhower seemed surprised that the Soviets would agree without expecting anything else in exchange for removing the missiles. He asked President Kennedy if Khrushchev had placed, in his words, any conditions whatsoever on the deal. Of course, Mr. Uh, President, did he uh, put any conditions on whatsoever? No, except uh, that uh, we're not going to invade Cuba. That's the only one we've got uh, now. But we don't plan to invade Cuba under these conditions anyway. And JFK again lies to his predecessor. When asked if Khrushchev demanded any other conditions whatsoever, Kennedy said no. The only one was that we not invade Cuba, which was not true because we had secretly agreed to remove our missiles from Turkey. 
So what was the truth of the situation? What really happened? How did they pull off this deal and still keep it from the public? The truth is that JFK had been talking about doing a Cuba for Turkey swap for much of the 13 days. I mean, he brought it up as early as day two. That, and he kept bringing it up as an idea he wanted to explore. In part, he wanted to explore it because the Jupiter missiles we had in Italy and Turkey were viewed as obsolete in military terms, and we were likely to remove them anyway. And yet they would be something that Khrushchev viewed as a threat. Yet Kennedy got almost unanimous opposition from members of XCOM whenever he brought this up. Kennedy was thus open to the deal when Khrushchev made the offer on the morning of Black Saturday, and XCOM was still in opposition when the message came in. Based on what's in the secret Kennedy tapes, Sheldon Stern reports in his article for History News Network, JFK's reply represents a turning point in the discussions, leaving no doubt about his evolving position. Well, now, that's what we ought to be thinking about. We're going to be in an insupportable position on this matter if this becomes his proposal. In the first place, we tried last year to get the missiles out of there because they're not militarily useful, number one. Number two, it's going to, to any man at the United Nations or any other rational man, it will look like a very fair trade. I don't think so, Assistant Defense Secretary Paul Nitze countered, as someone muttered, no, 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 in the background. Deal with this Cuban thing. We'll talk about the other things later. Now, we've known this might be coming for a week, Kennedy responded impatiently. This is their proposal. How much negotiation have we had with the Turks this week? JFK grumbled again. Who's done it? We've not actually talked with the Turks, Secretary of State Dean Rusk explained. This meant Kennedy's aides had been deliberately dragging their feet on something he wanted explored. Under Secretary of State George Ball declared that approaching the Turks on withdrawing the Jupiters would be an extremely unsettling business. Well, JFK barked, this is unsettling now, George, because he's got us in a pretty good spot here. Because most people will regard this not as an unreasonable proposal. I'll just tell you that. But what most people, Mr. President... National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy asked skeptically. The president shot back. I think you're going to have it very difficult to explain why we're going to take hostile military action in Cuba when he's saying, if you get yours out of Turkey, we'll get ours out of Cuba. I think we've got a very tough one here. I don't see why we pick that track, Bundy repeated, when he's offered us the other track in the last 24 hours. JFK interrupted irritably. Well, now he's offered us a new one. I think we have to assume that this is their new and latest position, and it's a public one. How can we negotiate, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara exploded, with somebody who changes his deal before we even get a chance to reply and announces publicly the deal before we receive it? You see, it completely changes the character of the deal we're likely to be able to make. So my point is, McNamara stressed, we ought to really keep the pressure on them in this type of situation. He urged the president to turn the Cuba-Turkey link down publicly. And after a bunch more squabbling with Kennedy holding firm against everyone else, that's what they sort of did. When the president sent Bobby to meet with Ambassador De Bruyne, he was carrying a letter that, as written, accepted the Friday deal, promising in writing only that we would promise not to invade Cuba. But Bobby was also carrying a verbal message, something they didn't put in writing. 
This message emerged during an Oval Office meeting late in the day to which only part of XCOM was invited. JFK revealed that his brother Bobby was about to meet with Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin and requested advice on what to tell the Soviet diplomat. The group quickly agreed that RFK should warn Dobrynin that military action against Cuba was imminent and make clear, consistent with Khrushchev's Friday letter, that the U.S. was prepared to pledge not to invade Cuba if the missiles were withdrawn. But the president continued to press for a deal on the Turkish missiles. Secretary of State Dean Rusk, finally recognizing JFK's determination, suggested that RFK advise the ambassador that a public quid pro quo for the missiles in Turkey was unacceptable. But the president was prepared to remove them once the Cuban crisis was resolved. The proposal was quickly accepted. Robert Kennedy was instructed to tell DeBrynden that any Soviet reference to this secret proposal would make it null and void. So that's how they kept the deal secret at the time. They communicated it only orally, not in writing. They said that we'd get our missiles out of Turkey after theirs were out of Cuba, and that if the Soviets mentioned this off-the-books offer in public, then the deal was off and we wouldn't pull our missiles out of Turkey. The Soviets thus needed to keep their mouth shut about the deal if they wanted it. Still, it was far from obvious that Khrushchev would accept the deal. I mean, after all, if they pulled their missiles out of Cuba and all the public knew was that we'd promised not to invade Cuba, that would imply to the world that we'd rejected the Black Saturday deal and it would be a huge loss of face for Khrushchev making him look weak. So in addition to the military options that were still very much on the table, Kennedy prepared a backup plan. JFK clearly had no faith in the strategy of accepting Khrushchev's Friday offer and ignoring his public Saturday message. Instead, he worked secretly with Rusk to put together an emergency fallback plan. The Secretary of State arranged to have former Deputy UN Secretary General Andrew Cordier put in place a covert back-channel strategy by which United Nations Secretary General Utant would announce, after receiving private word from Rusk that U.S.-Soviet negotiations had failed, a U.N. plan through which the U.S. and the USSR would mutually agree to remove their missiles from Turkey and Cuba. JFK was prepared to gamble that if the U.S. had publicly accepted this supposedly neutral plan, it would be very difficult for the Soviets to reject it. But because Khrushchev did accept a secret deal, they never had to put this plan into effect. And Kennedy pulled off this deal over the strong opposition of his own advisors. Sheldon Stern states, In fact, President Kennedy's inclination to pursue the Turkish option actually hardened in response to the dogged intractability of his advisors. The XCOM toughened JFK's determination by all but unanimously opposing his per preferred course of action a deal on the Turkish missiles. The celebrated diplomatic sleight of hand, little more than a cosmetic concession to the XCOM, ultimately served to conceal the real agreement that secretly and peacefully resolved the Cuban Missile Crisis. The tapes proved conclusively that Defense Secretary Robert McNamara was not JFK's principal ally in trying to keep us out of war. Indeed, Kennedy had no consistent ally and stood virtually alone against his XCOM advisors. The president later confided to John Kenneth Galbraith, You will never know how much bad advice I had. Now, thanks to the XCOM recordings, we all know 
And there was an awful lot of bad advice that almost certainly would have led to nuclear war. That advice was even coming from people like Bobby Kennedy, Robert McNamara, and almost everybody in XCOM. It appears that it was John F. Kennedy himself who kept World War III from breaking out, and then only barely because we had three close calls with it on Black Saturday alone. The secret deal involved removing our Jupiter missiles from Turkey, but we also had them in Italy. Was removing the missiles in Italy part of the secret deal, too? This is disputed. Uh, In his memoirs, Khrushchev said that we offered to remove the missiles in both Turkey and Italy in the -the off-the-books oral deal. So we don't have a paper trail on this, but that's what Khrushchev said. And afterwards, Robert McNamara did order the missiles in both countries to be dismantled. So we didn't keep the Italian ones in place. Now, what can we say about the Cuban Missile Crisis from the faith perspective? First, nuclear war bad. Uh, Second, thank God and literally thank God that one didn't happen in 1962. It likely would have killed a third of humanity and no one who is less than 60 years old would be here today because History is fragile, and if nuclear war happened 60 years ago, a whole different generation of children would have been born to the survivors, and I, for one, would not be here, and neither would most of our listeners. Third, we should make mention of Our Lady of Fatima and the Third Secret of Fatima. We talked about uh, the Fatima apparitions in episode 40, and we talked about the Third Secret in episodes 64 and 65. The short story is that in 1917, the Virgin Mary appeared to three children in Portugal, and she urged them to pray and asked for the Pope to consecrate Russia to her, uh, noting that otherwise it would continue to spread its errors, meaning communist doctrines and wars, among the nations. The third secret, which was not revealed until the year 2000, involved a prophecy of nuclear war which one of the seers, Sister Lucia, confirmed and said would have that this war would have happened in the 1980s, as we covered when we discussed the third secret. For many years, the third secret was held unopened in the archives of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome, because Sister Lucia had written on the outside of the envelope that it was not to be opened until 1960. Why did she do that? Sister Lucia said this was not something the Virgin Mary had told her to write. Instead, she wrote it on her own initiative because she had the feeling that it would be better understood at that time, which certainly would have been true because in 1917, nuclear weapons had not been invented. Nobody had heard of the concept or almost nobody, and many thought it was impossible to release atomic energy this way. The third secret was a composite image of several things happening, and one of the images was of an angel with a flaming sword, and Sister Lucia said that it seemed to her that the fire from the sword was about to consume the earth. Well, after 1945, when the U.S. built nuclear weapons and dropped them on Japan, and then the Cold War started, people would understand what the flaming sword meant. Uh, And with Russian aggression and the heightened Cold War tensions of the 1960s, people would naturally understand nuclear war as the meaning of the flaming sword that threatened to destroy the world. So Sister Lucia's intuition was right on the money. And just a couple of years later, in 1962, we almost had a nuclear war as a result of the missile crisis. 
eventually in 1984, Pope John Paul II consecrated not only Russia, but also all the other nations of the world. Sister Lucia confirmed that this consecration had been accepted in heaven, and she credited it with avoiding nuclear war in the 1980s. You can go back and listen to episode 64 and 65 for more information on that. Recently, in connection with the invasion of Ukraine, Russia has again been talking openly about the possibility of nuclear war. What do you make of all this? Vladimir Putin's talk about nuclear weapons is indeed disturbing. And at the time we're recording this, it appears to be just nuclear saber rattling to try to scare people and make them more timid. But it doesn't appear that global nuclear war is an imminent threat, in part because our intelligence services have been reporting that they have not seen Russia making the kinds of moves that would be expected if a nuclear war were imminent. You know, you want to get certain people and supplies and and troops in various places, and we haven't been seeing them doing that. Also, Russian military doctrine holds that nuclear weapons will be used only if there is an existential threat to the nation or its government. And at the time of recording, there isn't one. At some point, it is conceivable that Putin would use a tactical nuke in Ukraine, and that could lead to a global nuclear war. But it's not clear that Putin would be willing to start one, as it would mean a death sentence for him and everyone he loves. Even if Putin was psychopathic enough to order a nuclear exchange, it's not clear that his orders would be obeyed because his subordinates also would know that a global nuclear war would mean their deaths and the deaths of everyone they love. So at the time of recording, I'm cautiously optimistic just on reason-based grounds that we'll be able to avoid a nuclear war this time as well. Pope Francis has also consecrated Russia and the Ukraine with reference to this crisis. What do you make of that? I think it's a good move. I'm glad he did it. Uh, Even though the 1984 consecration was valid, it only promised the world a period of peace, according to the Fatima apparitions. It It didn't imply peace forever. And so the period of peace could now be over. You know, it's been more than more than 30 years since the Soviet Union fell. Maybe that was the period of peace the world was going to get. Um, However, we aren't limited to just one consecration. Over the years, popes did several consecrations, even if they didn't fulfill all the conditions the way the 1984 one did. For example, in 1942, during World War II, Pope Pius XII consecrated the world for the 25th anniversary of Fatima. Afterwards, Sister Lucia said that this consecration was enough that World War II itself would be shortened. And this suggests that even consecrations that aren't the one that the Third Secret referred to can have important effects on world affairs. So even though the requested consecration was done in 1984, shortly before the fall of the Soviet Union, additional consecrations can still be useful. I thus very much approve uh, of Pope Francis having consecrated Russia and Ukraine. I trust that this will have a positive effect on the course of the current conflict, and I'm trusting that Mary's intercession will help keep us out of nuclear war once again. Anything else you'd like to say from the faith perspective? Yes, pray. 
It's very important that we pray for the Russia-Ukraine conflict and for world peace in general. In particular, asking Our Lady of Fatima to intercede for these intentions is a good idea. Uh, for those who pray the rosary, I recommend including Russia, Ukraine, and world peace in your prayer intentions. And even if you don't pray the rosary, pray for these things anyway. Also, while the U.S. is not directly involved in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, we and other Western countries are indirectly involved. So our leaders need to make wise decisions that will help keep us out of nuclear war. As we've seen from our look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, a lot can depend on just one man. It was because of Kennedy's leadership that we made our way through this one, and Kennedy needed to overrule what he was being told by most of his advisors to achieve that. The current U.S. president is Joseph Biden, and there have been concerns about cognitive decline on his part. So I urge people to pray for President Biden and his advisors. Do you think people should be afraid of nuclear war at this point? Nuclear war is a terrifying prospect. I grew up in the Cold War, and I remember it hanging over our heads all the time and how terrifying that was for me as a child. But we got through the Cold War, in part through the intercession of the Virgin Mary. And despite the current conflict, things are not as bad now as they were then. Just on grounds of natural reason that I've already mentioned, I think we're likely to avoid nuclear war, and I'm very heartened by Pope Francis's act of consecration, and I trust in Mary's intercession. So at the time of recording, I don't think that at this point we should be terrified of nuclear war breaking out. We should be living our lives, trusting in God's mercy and his providential care. And at the same time, we should be praying for, pre for peace. But we got through the Cold War. It was worse then than it is now, and at the time of recording, I'm optimistic. Jimmy, what is your bottom line on the Cuban Missile Crisis? The Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962 was a terrifying world event. It easily could have led to global thermonuclear war, but fortunately, President Kennedy was able to provide the kind of leadership needed to avoid war. Our leaders did lie to the world about the secret deal they cut, and it's to Premier Khrushchev's credit that he accepted the secret deal, even though it meant a massive loss of face for him. The resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis also had lasting effects on world history, possibly including the Kennedy assassination, Khrushchev's fall from power, and the Vietnam War. And it definitely resulted in the birth of everyone under 60 years old, because not one of us youngsters would be here if there had been a nuclear war in 1962, and few others in America and Europe would have survived the war and lived down to today. So many thanks to God that we avoided the war then, and by his mercy, may we continue to avoid nuclear war until his son returns. You did promise last week that there would be a last-minute twist in this episode, so it's time to pay up, Jimmy. What's the last-minute twist? Well, everything we've covered so far is about the first Cuban Missile Crisis, the one that America and the world were aware of. But we haven't said anything about the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's what we'll be talking about later this year for the 60th anniversary, the second secret Cuban Missile Crisis that the world didn't know anything about. 
Oh man, that's like a three month cliffhanger or more or four. So folks, uh, oh, here, well, Jimmy's got some resources for us to look at while we wait it, it, for that it, time. It was, it was either that or do a three-parter. And, uh, <laughs> I've got the inside track, folks. I'm going to ask Jimmy about it once we're done recording, but you'll have to wait. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to everyone while they wait? We'll have a link to Sheldon Stern's book, The Cuban Missile Crisis in American Memory, Robert Kennedy's book, 13 Days, also the 2000 movie version of 13 Days, uh, also a link to the 1964 movie, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which is a dark comedy look at an event like the Cuban Missile Crisis. We'll have links, uh, a link to episode 12 on the Soviet doomsday device known as the dead hand or perimeter. Also a link to the Kennedy Library section on the Cuban Missile Crisis, which has multimedia resources you can look at online. Also the archive online of the secret White House tapes, including JFK, LBJ and Richard Nixon. Um the National Security Archive timeline that we've been quoting from, information about reporter John Scali and the KGB station chief Alexander Feklasov, information about the partial nuclear test ban treaty, the Washington-Moscow hotline, the shoe-banging incident at the United Nations, including video of Premier Khrushchev banging his shoe, uh, information about Vasily Arkhipov, who saved the world. Um, also information about the novelist Anthony Trollope and the Trollope ploy, as well as an article by William Sapphire on the Trollope ploy and Sheldon Stern's article showing why the Trollope ploy is a myth. Interesting. All right. So, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Well, we have a an extinction and survival theme, which seemed Appropriate, given we were talking about nuclear war and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, so there have been previous extinctions, like when the uh, when the dinosaurs died, and you know the, it's believed that an asteroid crashed into the Earth in, in in Mexico, basically, and it sent up fragments that covered much of the Western Hemisphere and changed the world's climate, and the dinosaurs died. Well, we think we may have found fragments now of the asteroid itself. And so you can read about uh, those and how we found them and why we think that they are actual fragments of the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs and allowed the rise of mammals, including us. Also, you know, not everything dies when there's when there's a problem. And uh, sometimes things survive, sometimes very small things. Well, we have found salt formations that contain ecosystems of bacteria, even though the salt formations have been there for a quarter of a billion years. That's not news. We've known about those for a while. But now we'll have a link to a story about 830 million year old microorganisms, some of which may be living. Uh, you know, being descendants of ones from 830 million years ago um, that have been found trapped in Australian rock salt. Wow. And so we may have communities that go back almost to the like the Cambrian explosion of bacteria and so or microorganisms anyway. So check out that link as well. Awesome. Awesome. 
All right. Well, that's it from us this time. We want to hear your theories about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close we came to nuclear war. We want to hear from you about all, all these events. So you can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they do on Mysterious World. We continue to get lots of uh, positive feedback saying how much they've improved the video quality with all the animations and cutaways and other things that they do. So uh, to see their work and uh, get an experience of what we're doing on the video version of Mysterious World, go to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's my YouTube channel. And you can watch uh, Mysterious World there. Also, I have other videos, you know, apologetic debates and discussions and things like that that you can watch. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it if you uh, subscribe to the channel and click the bell icon so that you'll always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it is a Mysterious World video or something else. And also, if you have a need for video production work, Oasis Studio 7 does really great work. I'm very happy with what they've been doing for Mysterious World. I think it's a big step up. And so go to their website also and see what they can do for you. Awesome. Uh, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? During the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev had to make a lot of really hard decisions based only on human guidance, like their advisors. Wouldn't it be nice if they had divine guidance, a way of consulting God to figure out what they needed to do? Well, in ancient Israel, they had such a method. The Jewish high priest had two objects known as the Urim and Thummim that let him ask questions directly of God. These two objects are very mysterious to modern scholars. So next week, we'll be talking about the mystery of the Urim and Thummim. Interesting. Well, folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt or mug or lots of other kinds of merchandise in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 214. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.
If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.